a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits. Welcome. I'm going to go straight in because we have a lot to get on with. And if you really want to make this an action podcast rather than just sitting there and absorbing, which of course you're very welcome to do, then get a notepad and pen out because I think you might want to take some notes on today's podcast episode. We want to discuss brain health. And initially I thought I'm going to get this brilliant guest speaker on and we're going to talk about our long-term brain health. How can we look after it? How can we reduce our risks of Alzheimer's, which I know is something many of us are worried about? And what can we do about all these bad symptoms like brain fog and other cognitive impaired sort of functions that we feel so many of us have? But very soon into recording the podcast interview, I realized I'm not going to do the topic justice by combining both questions into one episode. And so on today's episode, I really want to focus on how can we look after our long-term brain health. There's a big narrative out there on social media, in newspapers, from celebrities, that unless you go on HRT, you're going to get Alzheimer's and dementia. And for anyone like me who's been pushed into menopause early, prematurely, like so many of you, probably all of you listening, because of maybe radiotherapy, shut down your ovaries, maybe chemotherapy, put a stop to your cycles, and you might still not know if your periods are going to come back. You might have had surgery like me. Maybe you're on a long-term anti-endocrine treatment. However, you've arrived into menopause because of your cancer diagnosis. Doesn't really matter. Often it's happened prematurely. And even if it hasn't happened prematurely and you would have naturally been in menopause by now, the fact that perhaps you can't have HRT might really worry you because the narrative out there is HRT is really good for our bone health. And now many people say it's important for our brain health and heart health. The evidence might not be out there, but the narrative is out there. What I want to do is I want to talk about it. I want to know if there are risks to us because I'd rather know the risks and then think, what can we do about it? Even if perhaps the options that are available to a woman without a cancer diagnosis don't quite apply to us. But I'd rather know what the problem is so that we can then together become proactive about it. And that's exactly what I want to do with my podcast guest today. Now, this wonderful woman is a dietitian and she's based in America. Her name is Barbie. I'm going to share all her links in the show notes below. And she really is so passionate about helping us have better cognitive health. She's super passionate about bringing us these statistics and facts and talking about evidence-based solutions. But what I love about Barbie the most is it took for ages 
to get to talk about food, although she's a dietitian. And that just sums up for me how multifaceted an approach we can have. And I think that's the beautiful thing about it. I'm really excited about Barbie. Get your notepad out, get your pen out, and let's see how we can all reduce our risks of Alzheimer's by over 50%. Let's get on with it. Barbie, I'm delighted to be chatting to you. I love your energy. I love your Instagram feed. I love how you connect all of your messages with a real get to, I can do this attitude and science and ev evidence. It's a great combination. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me a little bit about you so that all of our listeners today can hear what you're passionate about and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I have been a dietitian for about over 20 years and always very interested in women's uh, nutrition and wellness, unfortunately. And I think this is still the case because I do have interns uh, kind of keeping me up to date on what was currently being taught. Not much differentiation was made between men and women in my education. And I always felt like that was really unfortunate because we are different and we do need, we do have special needs. And so my goal was always to really craft whatever I was doing to really target women. And as I got older, over 40 and now over 50, it has really um, become about those changes that happen with perimenopause and menopause, our increase in metabolic illness, our increase in risk because of the decline in estrogen and progesterone, and just life changes that happen, right? That can really, it's a different ball game than it was in our 20s and 30s. And I've always really been interested in brain health. I don't even know where it came from. I just have always been very interested. And when I started to realize what a connection there is between our metabolic health and our brain health, I realized I needed to talk about both. They're not, they're not separate. You know, the health of your brain rests on your blood pressure, your blood sugar, your, um, your blood lipids and your body composition. So it's all one package that needs to be discussed, um, uh, all together. And so that's kind of where I've I've come to in my career. And that's what's so exciting about your videos and your messages is although you inform so brilliantly about brain health and our cognitive health and long-term health, mm -hmm. you do talk about the rest of our body. And I think sometimes we get experts very specifically talking about one area of our body. But mm -hmm. some of our experts always say women are more than a set of boobs. You're more right. than the cancer you've had in your left boob, for example. We need to talk right. about it all. Yes. But I want to tap into that long-term brain health of ours with you a little bit more and to worry about our long-term brain health because everyone out there listening to our conversation today has had a cancer diagnosis. Many of our listeners have been pushed into an early onset menopause. Mm -hmm. And there is a big narrative out there that tells us that the sooner menopause is onset, the worse it is for our brain. Mm -hmm. And as the message stands on its own, I know it's the truth and these are the facts, but I want to know what I can do to play the best game as such, to put all of my eggs into the basket and to really play with a good hand. Of, yeah. you know, cards in my hand. And that's what what's I want to get out of you today. Tell us a bit about cognitive health, brain health, and why does it get worse for women? Is it worse than for men? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not completely understood. There is the, the idea, it used to be thought that it was just because women live longer than men. We now know that that's not enough of an explanation. 
Uh, most experts agree that it absolutely has something to do with the fact that our hormones fluctuate and then decline um, in midlife. And that's why women have twice the risk of Alzheimer's and are at a greater risk of dementia. Now, like you said, the earlier we hit menopause, it appears the greater our risk. However, I don't want that to, I don't want that to feel like a sentence to anyone. If you, one of the pinned um, reels on my Instagram page, uh, I think it's the top right, it, it lists all of the risk factors. The fact of the matter is we're all at risk of neurodegeneration. And so we all would benefit from from giving this some attention, from doing all of the things, all of the different domains. And it's not just nutrition and exercise, although they are very important, they can be really beneficial. It's also things like so making sure you have a healthy social network. It's things like continuing to use your brain, you know, learn new information and actually use it. Puzzles and word games and things like that are fine. I mean, that can be fun and kind of keep you um, a little bit more on point, but it's really about actually learning and using that information. So there, it's not just, um, you know, because really optimal nutrition isn't necessarily accessible to everyone. Really optimal exercise may be um, a diagnosis, cancer or otherwise, it now prevents you from really using your body in the way that would be optimal. There are lots of different things that we can do. And I want people to be very hopeful about maintaining brain health because we really can and slow progression, mitigate disease, if not prevent it entirely. Yeah. So before we get into the nutrition and the exercise bits, yeah. which I know you speak so brilliantly on, let's talk about what else we can do. Like, can I train my brain? Is there an app like the, I don't know, Headspace app for meditation? There is an app for Alzheimer's prevention, <laughs> a tool. <laughs> yeah, so all of those are great. But again, it's never any one thing. It's sort of this constellation of approaches to keep your brain nice and healthy. Like I mentioned, um, having a healthy social network is really at the top of the list. And this doesn't mean being the life of the party or having a million friends. It means having an, a, a dialogue, a supportive, healthy, safe relationship with even just a few people where there's give and take, you stimulate each other, you keep each other on point. That is really important. Isolation, social isolation is a and depression are major risk factors for neurodegeneration. So keeping a healthy, alive social network is important. Like I was mentioning, in addition to the little games we can play on apps and so forth, learning new information, like an example would be learning a new language and then going to that country and actually using that knowledge that you have. That's extreme. Not everyone can do that, but that's an example of learning new information and actually using it. Not using your GPS, finding your way around without a map, oh. you know, without being told. I know. Who can do I that? Know. We ever do it. I don't this is this is anxiety inducing. I did, I could not get anywhere without ways. If I can't turn ways on, I won't get in the car anymore. I know, same. And, you know, or remember trying to remember phone numbers instead of just, you know, little things like that. Learning to cook if you don't know how to cook. Gardening, things where you need to learn new information and actually use it. That keeps your brain stimulated. Thinking of your brain like a muscle that you, it, you don't want it to atrophy. You want it to keep, you know, maintain those synapses firing. So 
Those are things that you can do that have nothing to do with exercise or nutrition that are incredibly beneficial at, right at the top of the list in terms of- And that is um, so fascinating. Over the last few weeks, I took a pottery class, a course with some of my friends. And yes. it was the most amazing experience. It was Saturday morning. We spent three hours over a, a series of Saturdays. And A, I got to hang out with my friends, which was amazing. There was no pressure of being tired in an evening. We had time to sit and to talk to one another. We learned new skills of rolling and making little sausages out of the clay, all the way to firing it and making beautiful glazes. And I guess that's almost exactly what you're saying. That ticked all of my boxes, right? The that community. So beautiful and perfect because you were socializing, you were learning new information and and using it. And something that I didn't touch on, which you just did, is it was tactile. You were using, because that's a, a you know, using your hands, your brain is informing that. So that's exercise for your brain as well. That's one of the reasons that say, if you're going to journal, it's better to write it out. Actually using your hands in that, as opposed to say, typing it into a computer, actually making your brain work is really important for maintaining that integrity. Yeah. Yeah. And then what also happened is I felt really relaxed. Like I felt I had a Saturday morning without my children, and without my husband and my stress levels almost before I even got there seemed to sort of disappear. And I wonder, has stress got anything oh. to do with our brain health and cognitive health? Absolutely. Chronic stress actually shrinks brain tissue. So it is really wow. important. Yeah. So does um, sleep deprivation. So sleep and stress, two really important things to get a really good handle on. Um, sleep has so many other functions when it comes to your brain. But yes, it is demonstrated through research very consistently that um, chronic stress uh, has a, a really negative impact, not only on brain function, but brain tissue, which obviously go hand in hand. So you really do want to get a handle on your stress. It is not um, just physical or rather uh, emotional and mental stress manifest physically 100% of the time. So if it's chronic, that is ultimately going to lead to some form of illness, whether it's something kind of benign like headaches or shoulder tension, or maybe even a rash to real disease. And so I always recommend for my clients starting really simple, maybe a breathwork technique, 60 seconds in the morning, 60 seconds in the evening. Meditation, I'm a meditation teacher, so I'm a little bit biased, but I know it's not for everyone. If, if you're into trying, starting small, again, 60 seconds in the morning, 60 seconds in the evening. But anything you can do that relaxes you have a little list, three to five things that take three to five minutes just to complete that stress cycle, calm that cortisol and really have an outlet. So many people, I ask them when I meet with them, what is your outlet for stress? Because we all have stress. Many people don't have one. And I'm, I believe that every person should have a little list of things that they can do to relieve that stress in the moment. And then prophylactically, you know, like I use meditation every morning prophylactically for stress. And then I use breath work in the moment if I have a stressful situation, things like that. Also, one of my favorites is turning on my favorite song of the moment and dancing and singing, because there's no way after three to five minutes of that, you're still freaking out. <laughs> and you know what's so interesting? Go back to what you've just said three times a day for three minutes. 
-hmm. that almost sounds like it might not be enough but I know it isn't it is enough and we have studies backing it up but I think it's a real good motivator for someone to think it doesn't need to be loads and it doesn't need to be a huge change it could be a couple of minutes isn't it I often thought because obviously having a cancer diagnosis is so super stressful and then the stress goes on and on as the fear of recurrence lingers long after active cancer treatment and so that chronic stress I think really lingered in my body for years and years Mm -hmm. until I didn't even know I was chronically stressed anymore but it was always there somehow I always thought initially I thought if I do meditation or like a stress release whatever it was it needs to get rid of my stress immediately and but actually that was the wrong thoughts to have and the wrong expectation Mm -hmm. and what I do now I just do it without the expectation of the outcome Mm -hmm. because I sometimes think well even if it doesn't make me feel a load better now I know statistically from speaking so many experts like you two that it's helpful. I know it's good for my overall health, for my long-term health. And I've just committed to trust you rather than the effect almost. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Absolutely. And I always tell people it's a practice, right? Any of these stress relief techniques, um, it's kind of like, I look at it like brushing your teeth. You wouldn't brush your teeth once a week or once a month and expect good oral hygiene. This is a daily practice. Even if you feel like you don't need to brush your teeth, you need to brush your teeth. So it's the same thing with whatever you, whatever you will do consistently, it can be calling a friend. It can be taking a walk outside. It can be breathing. It can be meditation. It can be a hot bath or a hot shower, cold shower, cold bath, whatever you like, but doing it consistently, even when you don't feel like you need it, because that trains your brain to slip into that mode that much more easily when you do need it. And you are having a chemical effect every time you're doing it. So just like making your bed, like brushing your teeth, walking the dog, having your coffee, slide in a couple of minutes of a stress relief technique. Yeah. So we had connections and uh, social interactions, relationships. We have stress and reducing our stress levels. We have learning new skills and embarking on activities with our hands. What else can I add to my brain health toolbox? Okay. One of two things that kind of equally sit right at the top, I believe even more important in many ways than nutrition are sleep and exercise. I feel like for the brain, these two things are, I I can't say one's more important than the other, but for sleep, so many of us are not sleeping well. Something like 44% of people are chronically sleep deprived, which really, even if you don't feel like it's having an impact, it's having an impact. Again, much like stress, chronic sleep deprivation actually shrinks brain tissue, particularly in the hippocampus, which is responsible for memory. So we really want to prioritize it, whatever we need to do. This is when it's believed that the glymphatic system goes to work actually cleansing the brain um, to to be very... um, kind of high level and broad about it, uh, clearing beta amyloid plaques, which are associated with Alzheimer's disease. This is when s- deep sleep is when your body takes out your brain trash. So this is, it's really important to get to those nice deep layers of sleep. So I always say you are pre- preparing for a good night's sleep from the moment you wake up. Everything you do all day, and this is not about 
you know, micromanaging or, you know, planning your every move, but the things you eat, managing your stress, whether or not you exercise, all of it depend, you know, whether you're scrolling right before bed or looking at screens, it all leads you towards or away from a better night's sleep. So whatever, if you have sleep issues, have a look at your day and try to identify what you might shimmy or tweak so that you can get a better night's sleep because it's so crucial. So much is happening metabolically during sleep, almost more important than anything you could possibly do all day. So that's what I would say about that. <laughs> yeah. And we had the fabulous Dr. Zoe Shadell on the podcast. So if anyone is now thinking, oh my gosh, yeah, my sleep hasn't been great. Go back into the previous episodes. Dr. Shadell talks about exactly what you've just mentioned, the sleep hygiene and routine part of the practice. But she also talks about what we can do when we do all the right things and we're still yeah. up at three o'clock in the morning. And so if anyone is now thinking, oh, panic, I'm not sleeping, it's going to be awful for my health, <laughs> for my brain, then go back to that episode. I think yeah. sometimes we need different bits of information at different times in our recovery. And so, yeah, that could just be helpful for someone. Yeah. And nothing that I say is intended to instill fear. <laughs> it's all you just in, informing that this is, you know, so many of us think, oh, well, it's sleep. I'm not doing anything. It's not very productive, whatever. It is so, so important to any health condition, but particularly your brain. Yeah. And you know, what's been so interesting, because I really struggle if I can't sleep. So I'm such a lightweight. If I don't sleep well for a few days, nights even I start to panic my anxiety goes up like I catastrophe it's it's awful for me mm -hmm. and so I can really relate to people who find it so hard if they can't sleep but when I do sleep well and a lot of the times I do sleep really well I really have to make a conscious decision of actually go to bed a bit earlier and just take myself to bed when I could be doing things I could be pottering I could be on watching the telly and I could be on my phone but it's it's almost like I need to set myself a bedtime. Like I set my children bedtime. I need a bed. I need the bedtime. <laughs> Adults don't, we don't outgrow an appropriate bedtime. You know no. I mean? Yes. Just because we can stay up doesn't mean we should. And, you know, one tip that I give to people is if you're falling asleep on the couch, you know, while you're watching television or scrolling your phone or whatever, that is your body saying it's time for bed. Even yeah. if it's 830 and it feels like, oh, this is way too early. That's your body telling you something. And so maybe for a little while you end up going to bed at 830, but you'll be getting a much better night's sleep. And eventually you can kind of tweak it so that you're maybe going to bed a little bit later and getting up a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. later, but you know, I went through a period of time where I was waking up at between three and four in the morning, ready to go. Like I, I could not, nothing I was going to do was going to get me back to sleep. And I struggled with it and stayed in bed until six for many months until I finally decided I'm just going to get up. I'm just going to wow. start my day as if it's, you know, seven o'clock or six o'clock or whatever. And eventually over the course of about six months, it shifted an hour later and an hour later and an hour later. So now I go to bed at nine and get up at five. That's not appropriate for everyone, but work with what your body is trying to tell you. Does that make sense? Yeah, total sense. And I think sometimes when we feel so tired in the evening, we mm -hmm. really don't want to give in. It feels like giving in. It feels yeah. like I should have more energy in me. Why is everyone out there partying? And why am I <laughs> collapsing on the sofa? It's half past eight. 
Right. But you're right. Your body needs that rest and that sleep. And instead of overriding, it is great to just honor it. It doesn't mean we're giving in. It's honoring our needs on that day, isn't it? That's right. In, in, in any regard, I mean, your body is always speaking to you and, and telling you what it needs. If, if you, if you really listen and it's good to listen to those whispers before it becomes, you know, getting clobbered over the head with something. And that is one of those things. If you are falling asleep, if your eyes are drooping at dinner, that's your body saying, we need to get to bed a little earlier for now. And, and hopefully eventually that will, you know, tweak to a a more, an hour that's feels better. But for now, this is what I'm saying. And we need to go to bed. (laughs) Yeah. And you know what I love about the conversation we're having, although you're a dietitian, and I brought you on for your expertise and all the research that you're so interested in. We don't just talk, we actually haven't spoken about food. And the the reason why I really like that is if someone is sleeping really terribly at the moment, we've already listed a few other things that we can do and focus on. Because if we just focus on what isn't working for us, it's Mm going to just get a bigger problem, right? So if anyone is out there listening, thinking I sleep terribly, I'm going to start on strengthening my social connections. I'm going to de-stress a little bit more. I'm going to make sure I learn a new skill or maybe go to pottery or do a bit of gardening. Then the focus isn't just on what's not working. We can shine the focus on to all the other things. That's right. And if you're not sleeping well, even if it's your normal and it, it you know, you just think, well, I, I don't, I know I don't sleep well, but I don't feel that bad chances are you would feel worlds better if you did figure out what your sleep issues are and and attend to them because it is so difficult to have the energy to grocery shop and cook food and plan a meal and exercise and manage your stress when you're exhausted. So, you know, figuring out what I, I want people to focus on their strengths, but also identify their weaknesses because their weaknesses are probably contributing to other areas and weakening them a bit. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Mm. My approach with My corporate work and my private work is what I call the four pillars of wellness, and it's nutrition, sleep, exercise, and managing your stress. I look at it like a table with four legs. Each of these pillars is equally important because if if each is a leg on a table, if any one is weak, the table is not even. So we really ultimately over time want to bolster all four. They are equally important to each other because they play into each other. And it's like you were saying earlier about how sometimes experts will focus on their area of the body or their area of expertise. That is the unfortunate, I mean, Western medicine is amazing. I have nothing but respect, saves lives literally every minute of every day. But the unfortunate piece of it is that it is so compartmentalized. And I I think that when it became that way, we lost decades of being able to heal because we're not looking at the whole person and being able to just not just look at the brain, not just look at the kidneys, not just look at the liver or the heart. If we were really always looking at the complete person, a lot more healing would be taking place by now, I believe. But so I really encourage just individuals to be paying attention to their whole body and treating their Mm -hmm. whole body as well as possible. I like that because when you were talking about the table, I'm envisaging a very nice thick oak table for myself, me, the table, (laughs) for me and all my mates to have a big old dancing party on the table and for the table and the legs not to collapse. (laughs) And we'll be knocking back the kombucha shots or whatever it is. (laughs) 
That's exactly, that is exactly what I want you to picture. That's beautiful. Yes. So now what do we put on that table and onto our plates? (laughs) Right. So when it comes to the brain, there is research that was adapted from the Mediterranean philosophy is, you know, the Mediterranean approach, which most people I think are familiar with by now. But if you're not, you know, there are no one owns this. It's not a branded diet. It's based on research. So there's a lot of free information about what makes up the Mediterranean philosophy or the Mediterranean approach. The MIND diet, M-I-N-D, Mediterranean-Interventions for Neurodegenerative Delay is what M-I-N-D stands for, was adapted from the Mediterranean approach to specifically target Alzheimer's and neurodegeneration. So it is essentially the Mediterranean diet with a few tweaks, um, emphasizing a few foods in particular, making sure you're getting leafy greens every day. I always say leafy greens every day and a rainbow throughout the week when it comes to vegetables. So getting your purples, your reds, your yellows, your oranges throughout the week, every day, if you can, if you're that into vegetables, that's amazing. Um, but making sure you're getting leafy greens every day, lots of really good data on, um, younger brains and more leafy greens. They're, you know, correlated. So really strong evidence for berries particularly blueberries, but any berries really for whole grains. So getting lots of fiber. Fiber is really important, particularly soluble fiber, because it helps um, clear LDL cholesterol. It helps with glucose regulation. It helps reduce visceral fat, which is really inflammatory. So getting lots of fiber is really important. Staying really well hydrated, just a 2% drop in hydration can cause brain fog delayed cognition and fatty fish. So getting omega-3s. Now, if you don't like fish, eat fish, you're vegan, vegetarian, algae supplements are probably beneficial for you. The research isn't as good on supplementation, but a lot as opposed to just eating fish, eating fish is associated with lower all cause mortality across the board, eating a few servings of fish a week, people who do that Uh, die from less disease period, but the supplementation doesn't have quite that level of, of, um, association, but a lot of people question the research design, the quality of the supplements, because it's kind of not understood how the, how the supplements aren't measuring up to fish. So I would say if you don't eat fish, a supplement is probably a good idea. Just make sure it's super high quality. You're buying it directly from the manufacturer. It lists EPA and DHA on the label. It doesn't just say fish oil because that could be a lot of things. And also really important, speak with your provider because high uh, high levels of omega-3 supplementation can interfere with certain medications. It's associated with atrial fibrillation and bleeding issues. So you just wanna make sure with your provider that um, the amount you're taking is okay. Okay. So did someone just come up with the concept of the mind diet for the purposes of preventing Alzheimer's disease? Yes. Dr. Martha Claire Morris, who is a researcher, um, she's since passed, uh, but she uh, spearheaded a research study at Rush University, Chicago, and it was published in 2015. So if you are interested in like all the details of the mind diet, she wrote a book that details her study. It's diet for the mind, Dr. Martha Claire Morris and Claire is C L A R E. You can get it on Amazon or take it out from the library. 
Also want to recommend an excellent cookbook that uh, was just published this spring by Dr. Annie Fenn. That is The Brain Health Kitchen. The first section of the book is sort of an updated version uh, over the because it was just published this year. So it's been eight years, um, sort of an updated, tweaked version of the mind diet and then recipes. So those are the if you're interested in the mind diet, those would be my two go to's for really getting into more than we can in this conversation. And so for people that embarked on the mind diet, I suppose researchers have followed them for more than a few weeks and months. It must have been a longer period of time. Yes. Was there real effect and was it actually really beneficial for reducing Alzheimer's disease? Yes, people who most closely adhered to what was laid out in the mind diet, there was a 53% reduction in Alzheimer's disease. So that's really significant. And then wow. you know, even people who only moderately or mildly adhered had a reduction in risk, but just not that significant. You know, was obviously the, the greater you adhere, the greater your risk reduction. So, but that's, I mean, that's really- amazing. And the, the, what I was saying about the leafy greens, a serving of leafy greens a day in this study was associated with brains that acted or operated as if they were 11 years younger. So wow. that's really significant too. So get those greens. <laughs> wow. And so that's really exciting because if I'm thinking, gosh, some of our listeners, they might be in their 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s. Mm -hmm. um, menopause was onset because of their cancer treatment, hormone replacement therapy might not be an option. We worry that our um, possibility of getting Alzheimer's disease goes up by 10, 20%. I don't know how much we worry, you know, everyone's good. I don't know what the statistics are, but different worries. But if I know I can stick to a diet, add those lovely leafy greens, add those lovely whole grains, legumes, pulses, eat the rainbow, the berries, I can reduce my risks about, oh my gosh, by 50%. That's brilliant, isn't it? I know. It really, truly is. So if anyone is truly concerned, and I'm assuming they probably are if they're listening to this episode, I really recommend those two books because again, it can really outline so much more than I can say in just yeah. this time that we have together. But what I love about the Mediterranean approach, the mind diet, and then of course there's the DASH diet as well, which is also an adaptation of the Mediterranean approach, dietary approaches to stop hypertension. So if anyone has high blood pressure, the Mediterranean, DASH, mind, address that as well. And hypertension is also a major risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. So if you have high blood pressure, you really want to manage it. What I love about all of these approaches is that it's not about restriction. It's not about don't ever eat this one particular food or category of foods. It's all about including the foods that we know to be really beneficial for the brain and other aspects of health. Let's stick to the mind diet for the purpose of the next question. Does the mind diet suggest to reduce any amount of foods or food groups, or does it just focus on what to include? It does talk about, you know, what you would want to be very mindful about. Um, and the, that is alcohol, for sure. Uh, dairy. Interestingly, just one serving of dairy a week is what's, and this would be like two ounces, um, is what's recommended. Uh, there are other approaches that are beneficial for the brain that don't get quite that restrictive on dairy, but the mind diet does. Uh, red meat, 
refined grains and sugars. I think that most approaches that are really interested in metabolic health, brain health, do recommend that we are very mindful about ultra processed foods, refined grains, added sugars, keeping those foods to less than 20% of our total calories is what's recommended pretty much across the board. It's not that they have absolutely no place and you have to be fearful of them. It's just that you want to be very uh, mindful about how much you're consuming. So those would be the foods that uh, would, you know, we want to be mindful about. And I don't think there's anything new there. I think if you're interested in nutrition and metabolic health and brain health, you've heard all that before. Yeah. Um, And olive oil is something that we want to use a lot of. Uh, The oleocanthals are particular in the olive oil are particularly beneficial for brain health. So using monounsaturated fats, so olive or avocado oils as your primary cooking fats, dressings, spreads. Um, The way I differentiate between olive and avocado, because nutritionally their profiles are almost identical, is olive oil is good for under 375 degrees Fahrenheit. That's Fahrenheit. And uh, avocado oil is good for over it's, it has a higher smoke point. So you can cook at higher temperatures with avocado oil. So if I made myself some lovely fish cakes, cause I saw a really nice recipe the other day, would you fry those in a bit of avocado oil rather than the olive oil? Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. Talk to me a little bit more about the leafy green veg, because although I am so passionate about cooking and I've been cooking healthy food, you know, for years now. And even when my kids were at primary school, I would cook for the kids. I would cook for my husband. It was awful. Once I lost him to the fish and chip shop because um, my food was all so healthy and I cooked courgette spaghetti like you did, you know, 10 years ago. <laughs> and then he was never satisfied. I think I've learned my lessons. Um, but it's the leafy green veg. I know I'm not even now, and I'm very conscious about my diet and have been for years. I don't think I'd add them daily. I might add three or four portions a week, maybe if it's a good week, but there is no way daily. Could you give me some practical tips of how I include leafy green veg into my everyday, like put them in smoothie? Is that a yes or a no? Yes. And I was, I want to thank you for bringing that up because that was on the tip of my tongue earlier. And then I forgot to say it. If you're someone who doesn't like leafy greens, because a lot of people don't, Put them in something like a smoothie or a sauce or a soup and blend it so that you're not really tasting it, but it's there. One quick word about smoothies, just so we don't go over. I mean, we don't worry about the fruit, the sugar in fruit. Fruit comes along with vitamins and minerals and hydration and phytonutrients and fiber. So we don't want to get crazy about the sugar in fruit. But if we are loading three, four cups of of fruit into a beverage, that's a lot. And Mm -hmm. so kind of like drinking juice. We want to kind of um, moderate that. What I would say about a smoothie is don't put more fruit into it than you would sit down and eat whole. Okay. That's good. I, I think that that keeps it an appropriate amount. And then you add some leafy greens. And then also for a smoothie, it's a good idea to add a source of fat and a source of protein so that we don't have a, you know, a blood sugar spike and then crash that we don't want. So it keeps things kind of nice and even, but you can put it in on a sandwich, in soups, in pastas, you know, it doesn't have to be a salad or a side of sauteed or, you know, whatever. Uh, There are lots of different ways to incorporate it. But if you really just can't do that three, four times a week is completely fine. Just maybe make it a slightly larger portion, you know, kind of prioritize it when you do have it. 
I definitely need to make a conscious decision of adding more into my shopping list as well. Because for me, it always starts with the planning, right? Unless I plan to eat something and really sort of spend a bit of time on my shopping list, of course, it's not going to happen. So I, it's a good reminder to just add it and then and then use it up. Yeah, I talk about with my clients and when I do workshops, I talk about what I call the five-part plate. And this is aspirational. It doesn't have to look like this all the time. But, you know, when you're thinking about putting a meal together, be thinking, where's the green? Where's the color? Where's the protein? Where's the anti-inflammatory fat? And where's a little extra fiber? So that can come in the form of vegetables or whole grains or sweet potato or, you know, um, winter squash or whatever, if you want to round it out with some starch. But, you know, just making sure leafy greens, color, protein, anti-inflammatory fat, and a little extra fiber. That's my five-part plate. And obviously not every meal is going to look like that, but when you really want to put some effort in, having those elements uh, can really make sure you're really nutritionally complete in terms of brain health. Yeah. Super practical, super practical tips. Is there anything else we've forgotten when we talk about our long-term, how we can look after our long-term brain health or reduce the risk of Alzheimer's from your lovely toolbox exercise, (laughs) I think? Yes, yes. Let's talk about exercise. And nutritionally, I want to mention one more thing that I forgot to say, and that's nuts. Nuts contain really nice amounts of vitamin E um, and many of them monounsaturated fats. So those are really going to contribute nicely, especially walnuts and almonds. So a quarter cup serving a day or nut butter, you can put it in a smoothie on toast, you know, whatever you like, or in your yogurt or your oatmeal nuts are really beneficial for the brain. Okay. So moving on to exercise, if there is one thing besides sleep that all brain health experts agree on, it's that exercise is essential. And this doesn't mean you have to crush it at the gym every day. It just means you have to be an active person in order to really benefit your brain. Your brain needs that circulation. You know, exercise is really, it's so unfortunate that we equate exercise with our weight and shape more than we should. That really misses the point of what exercise is truly about. The human body is designed to require it. It's not an optional thing we do if we want to look good. That is part of the reason that a sedentary lifestyle, as it's called, is usually second only to smoking in terms of disease risk, because we're just not moving enough, many of us. And so again, it could be intentional exercise. Ideally, it is. 150 minutes of cardiovascular activity a week and 70 minutes of strength training a week is what is the baseline recommendation for brain health and metabolic health. But if you can't manage that, or you just kind of want to think about it before you start to try, clean your own house, wash your own car, take a walk after dinner, walk to the grocery store and carry your groceries back. You know, there are lots of things you, I stand up when I'm working. I pace when I'm on the phone. These are all little ways that we can increase that blood flow, that oxygen, those nutrients going to the brain. I'm going to tell you two examples of my family now, because it really sums up your whole talk. My grandmother is 90. 
And mm-hmm. she has lived a life encompassing exactly all the things you have spoken about for her brain health. She is so sharp in her brain. It's incredible. She lives independently. She's never driven a car. She has never had much alcohol. She's always home cooked her food. She eats all food groups in moderation, but she's prepared all of her meals. She loves cooking. She has foraged herbs and she's really always moved her body because of her lifestyle. And she always really helped my mom in looking after myself and my brother when we were little. And Mm -hmm. so that generational interlink between uh, someone who becomes a bit older and moving because she looked after her grandchildren is amazing. And now I look at my father-in-law who's in his 80s, incredibly sharp in his brain, who is an amazing granddad to all of his 13 grandchildren or however many he has now. And he's always on the go gardening. He comes and helps me in my garden. He is always running after a grandchild. He doesn't need to go to the gym. He's moving his right. body. Right. And that's and, and he's interacting. He's learning new skills. He's living with his, it's all the things he said. It's the community. It's all the things she said. It's kind of like we've forgotten how to do basic things, haven't we? Yes. Well, I mean, modern life. We don't even have to stand up if we don't want to <laughs> yeah. We can work. We can get food. We can do it all basically sitting the entire day. And it, it really, it, it's hurting us. It really is. So any opportunity you have to just move your body, that is beneficial. So many of my clients over the years have said to me, well, I, I'm not going to bother exercising because I don't have an hour every day. It's like, doesn't need to be. It's sort of like the meditation or the stress skills. It could be a few minutes. That makes a difference, you know? And something else I want to mention um, before I forget is something called cognitive reserve, which is a concept that is identified as a reason that people who upon death and upon uh, autopsy of their brain, they have a brain that looks like they should have had Alzheimer's disease, lots of beta amyloid plaque, lots of tau tangles, atrophy, but they functioned as if they didn't. And the theory is something called cognitive reserve, which is even if these things are going to happen, maybe it's genetic, maybe it's environmental, something that changes your brain in that way, using everything that we've talked about could potentially prevent your brain from actually behaving as if it has the disease, which is fascinating. And I'm sure Tony will talk about that as well. But um, yeah, so these, even if we are genetically predisposed, which some of us are, um, and or we have type two diabetes, which is a a major risk factor, hypertension, um, or various other contributing factors, the more of this other stuff that we do that is preventive can go a very long way. I absolutely love it. That's exciting to know. You know what's exciting about this? It it's you know when people have to debate is um, menopause um, a natural sort of progression and it's yeah it's a natural process or is it a hormone deficiency? And I sort of sit. I love watching and listening to the debate. I love participating, and I can understand all points. I can always understand all sides. So I have, and I'm not going to make my mind up because I don't feel I have to. But what I do know is as soon as something becomes a label or you become deficient, you always start behaving that way. And when we start behaving a certain way, that works against us, doesn't it? If I work like a deficient person, I'm going to 
perhaps already feel as if things have gone bad, whereas actually I have a lot of stuff that I can do. Everything that you've taught us today, there's so much I can do. And you've just exactly explained it. The brain can almost trick us. Yes. Yeah. It's fascinating. It really is. And I'm a big believer. I don't want to get too woo or out there, but I am just a huge believer in mindset. What we tell ourselves it informs the way that we operate. You know, I, I, I really, really believe that. And that's partly how I use my meditation to set a mindset because we've all got stuff, right? That could take us down, but we, we really have to try um, to combat that and, and, and speak to ourselves in a way that's really proactive and, and empowering because there is so much um, connection. I don't believe that the mind and body are separate at all. And again, I think that this is an unfortunate outcome of Western medicine is that we've been taught to believe that our thoughts and feelings are entirely separate from our physical selves. And I know that to not be the case. And so the more that we can empower ourselves with positive think, you know, I, not um, toxic positivity where it's just, you know, not not meaningful at all or not realistic, but just speaking to ourselves in a way that is empowering, it goes a very, very long way physically. I, I absolutely agree and love that. Just recently, I thought about all the people I speak to who have some sort of post-traumatic uh, stress disorder from a cancer diagnosis, from all the surgeries, from fearing for your life. And then I thought, gosh, often that, pe- that, that is just, hooks us even years after the event actually happened and then a a thing happens in some people that I speak to and it's this post-traumatic growth Mm -hmm. and I see that in a lot of people people run businesses off the back of what's happened to them people become amazing entrepreneurs people set up charities right like most huge charities are driven by someone's personal experience and there Mm -hmm. is a big growth out there and I hope that by listening to you today, people will use the opportunity to think, I can change my mindset a little bit into making this a growth into an action, into an actionable positive step. So I know we're all here and everyone listening is because we've had a really shitty ride. There is no other way of saying it. But we can learn and better our diet because of it. And maybe it will become better than it would have ever been without our trauma and stressors. I couldn't agree more. I think when we can take um, negative experiences and learn from them and and turn it around into something that we are then contributing and and um, making to say making the best of it sounds so trite, but you know what I mean. It's exactly what you've said. My mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's last summer. Um, and she, I, she lives with me and I take care of her. And so, you know, I, I've known I knew three years prior to her diagnosis, but, uh, you know, her diagnosis is really why I decided to really start beating the drum because I know that we can affect change in terms of this disease. I know we can, I know prevention is possible. I know at least slowing a progression, uh, mitigation is possible. And so I really just want women to be really well-informed so that they can then make decisions for themselves. But if you, you can't without the information. And unfortunately, if I didn't do this for a living, I wouldn't know that women experience a significant uptick in 
uh, high blood pressure, elevated LDL cholesterol, in, insulin resistance, body fat change, body composition changes, and therefore risk of Alzheimer's. I wouldn't know this if I didn't do this for a living. And this information is just not disseminated enough. And so I just want to be a part of maybe helping women a little bit understand what more they can do to protect their brains. Yeah. Firstly, thank you for sharing that. And I'm sorry about your mom's diagnosis. She's in the best of hands with you. (laughs) Thank you. Now, knowing all the things you know, this is my last question for you. Knowing all the things you know, what we've just spoken about, you've got this amazing toolbox. You're also in a situation where your personal circumstance with your mum has been a really difficult diagnosis, I'm sure, to grapple with. Does this scare you looking into the future now or do you feel positive about your own brain health and your own cognitive health? Well, I think because I've been through other things in my life and a long time ago learned how to have an attitude of we're going to take that what you know we're going to take this and we are just simply going to see it as I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can in, in terms of prevention. And so that's, that's how I see it. I'm not scared. It it is what it is. Life is going to give me what it gives me. And I can only do the best I can to do all of the things I know to do. You know, I got tested for the, the, um, APOE gene. Uh, I know that I'm not at elevated risk genetically, Uh, But that doesn't, uh, clearly my mother has, and quite frankly, my father had dementia when he died as well. So I am very clearly at risk. So what that tells me, instead of saying, oh, well, I've got all of this genetic risk or this familial risk, and I'm just going to, you know, crawl into a corner and feel sorry for myself. My attitude is, no, I've got a toolbox. I know what I can do. I'm going to do the best I can. And then life is going to give me what it gives me. So I don't really feel a lot of fear. I feel like this is my ride and I'm just going to do the best I can. Thank you. You're amazing. Thank you. I've had so such a nice conversation with you. Thank you so much. And I know I did something really amazing for my brain today because I learned lots of amazing things from you. <laughs> I've connected to another That's human being. <laughs> that is you. Thank so you. I'm tick, tick, tick. I'm now going to jump down the stairs, which is never great for my pelvic floor, but I know good for my bones <laughs> and the rest of my body. Right, right. Another tick off the list. Thank you for your honesty and your expertise. You're amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've really appreciated this. And thank you everyone who's listening and just take care of your brains. Oh, I really loved this conversation. You know, it's fascinating, isn't it? I thought when I got Barbie on the podcast and when I arranged the interview with her, I thought we're going to really just talk about food. Like that's her role. She's a dietitian. What I love about her is she shared my mission and my passion, and that is to look as us, the person as a whole. And so if at the moment you're thinking, I'm not sleeping very well and my diet's gone out the window, then we know there are many other things we can do, like fostering connections, maybe learning something new, being part of a community that would also help us reduce our risks of Alzheimer's, dementia in the future. And aren't those statistics incredible? I am definitely going to Google the MIND, M-I-N-D diet a little bit more for myself. I'm definitely going to see how I can introduce a few more portions of green leafy veg into my diet. And I'm definitely going to continue to learn new things because my pottery course with my friends has just come to an end and I absolutely loved it. 
And I think from speaking to Barbie as well, of thinking how important it is to learn something new and be in a safe community that supports you, spending time with your friends. How brilliant that is from a long-term cognitive health. I'm now going to take a mental note, put a message into my WhatsApp group with my friends and go, hey, when are we booking in for more pottery or what are we going to do next? I've absolutely enjoyed and let's do more of it. And so I hope that you can take some action from today's podcast. Maybe you can email me and tell me if you've learned something new in the last six months or year. I'd love to collate a, a little spreadsheet and share that with everyone else. And maybe we can share our newly found enthusiasms with the group, with all of the other listeners, so that we can inspire one another. With that, I love you and leave you. And we're going to have the next podcast episode in a few weeks time on brain fog and current brain sort of cognitive impairments. 